Hello, yeah. this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here with Dennis Sullivan. And our readers know Dennis from his field notes, some of our most brilliant writing. I myself just know little bits and pieces of Dennis. He came with tomatoes today for Marcello. I know he grows tomatoes. I know he writes poetry. I know he bakes bread. I know he edited a journal on restorative justice. I know he's written a number of books, and our readers are very familiar with the one on Voorheesville, where he's the village historian. I know that he was a brother once, but really, I don't know how any of this fits together. Yeah. So I hope to figure it out as much as we can in half an hour. Welcome, Dennis. Hello. Dennis. Hello. And so we have Rose here, too. Yes, Rose H. Rose Schneider is our tech on this, and she is recording our words as we speak. Who just got a, a fellowship from, say, uh, from Joe Jay College of Criminal Justice. Yes, or, she did. Wow. And we're very proud of her. Uh, is that, was that too much editorial? <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. You are from where? Uh, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. I lived there for the first 18 years of my life. And how did that shape you, Staten Island? Well, you lived on an island. Yeah. And it would be like growing up in Australia or New Zealand. Uh, you ha- Everywhere you went, you had to take a ferry boat or a bridge. And the so I- does that make you self-reliant? Does that make you close to the other people in your community? What does that do living on an island? It makes you uh, withdraw <laughs> from the rest of the world. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I took ferry boats to Elizabeth, New Jersey. I took ferry boats to Manhattan. I took ferry boats to uh, Bayonne, New Jersey. I took ferry boats. It was a 69th Street ferry to Brooklyn. Uh, electric ferry, by the way. Auto, maybe auto, auto. So everywhere you went, you 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 really were locked in, as if you were, uh, as if it were like a, a barrier. Well, what about your family? What were they like? Well, the family. There were six kids in our family. We grew up in a very Roman Catholic, uh, Irish slash Polish uh, family, and everything we did seemed to be to resonate Roman Catholicism. Uh, the Catholic school we went to. All my siblings, my cousins, my parents went to that school. Uh, and we had uh, Catholic nuns. We had the priests, uh, all, of, all of whom were very good. Uh, everybody wanted to work at Bingo's on Friday night. Uh, to be put. So my days, there would be no school. You have a snow day. And people would go to school to clean your races for their nuns. Uh, we were terribly... And, I decided to become a teacher when I was six years old, when I had those nuns. And you followed through with that. I did, I so did. tell us what what got you off the island, and where did you go? Well, I, at 18, I left to Staten Island, and I went and joined the Christian Brothers of the Bishop in Barrytown, New York, and stayed in the Christian Brothers for 10 years. And my tell brother, us about, you just wrote a book about them, right? I, I, the school I taught in. Yeah. And my brother John joined the year after me. It stayed 10 years. My brother Jimmy, two years later, joined, and he stayed for 11 years. So what were those 10 years like? What did you do? Well, uh, for the first year, the postulacy in the division, you live like a Trappist monk. I mean, that would, that would be the, the thing. That the, but most of us aren't familiar with that. What does it mean to well, live you like wake a Trappist up, it's, it's monk? Well, it's a life of silence and prayer. And it, it's a strange kind of existence for a working class uh, a relatively uh, unsophisticated 18-year-old from Staten Island 
uh, to go and to be reading uh, this book on spirituality by Rodriguez, a, a, a Jesuit from the 16th and 17th century, and then a French spiritualist, Tankeray, uh and I didn't even have a sense of what emotions were. <laughs> So the silence, tell me about the silence. How how many hours a day did you have to be silent? Well, starting from the top of the day to the morning at 8 o'clock, as in any monastery, there's a great silence, and you're not supposed to speak at all. Uh, during the day, if you needed to talk to someone, you would say, which was like, live Jesus in the house, and the other person would say, forever. And then you were, you are allowed to speak. It was something important. Uh, but you woke up in the morning at five o'clock. You went down to chapel. Uh, there was morning prayer. There was mass, breakfast, uh, up until about eight o'clock. It was all total silence. What does that do for your brain? It, you well, become very introspective. You become an island yourself and think about things you without do. having ferries to cross. Do yeah, you, you do. Uh, it 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 it, uh, it 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 changes who you are. Obviously, uh, some people rebelled and uh, left. Uh, the year I went which was in 1958, it was like the heyday, still the heyday, uh, from post-World War II up until the early 60s, you, monasteries were, were bulging at the seams. Why? Because there was a certain uh, sense that the United States, it, it, there was a letdown after World War II. And people like Thomas Merton, his famous book, The Seven Story Mountain, was really written uh, pre, well, post World War II, but he went into the monastery in '41. That inspired a lot of people. Inspired to go a lot of people. Uh, you know, the, the legend is that many people walked into the Trappist monastery or the monasteries with a copy of that, with a paperback copy of that book in their pocket. So it, it, it's a tremendous transformation uh, to face yourself at 17, 18 years old, uh, and not really having done that before in any kind of systematic way. Uh, because it was a French order, we, during the division, we learned French. Uh, there were three or four times during the day, when, uh, at least, uh, where we sang psalms in chapel. There were two or three periods in which we had spiritual reading. You were expected to read something of substance, like Thomas Merton or, uh, or Dorothy Day from the Catholic work, or that, that sort of thing. So, you, you left that, you, uh, after two months, of posthumously, you took the robe, you, you had a new name. So I, I took the name Brother Adrian Aquinas. And why did you choose that name? Well, I had a teacher in high school, Brother Adrian, who, uh, Brother Adrian Talbot, who was wonderful. And I took Aquinas because he was a smart guy. And I felt <laughs> I needed, <laughs> I needed some help in that regard. <laughs> Well, I see you sent me once a picture of you from that era, yes. and there you were in your robes, yes. you call them, yes. and you were playing saxophone. Uh, yeah, and looking very cool. <laughs> as, as a monk, do you call yourself a monk, a brother? What do you. you we're a brother, but brother. You, you, you lived the life of a monk the first five years of formation. So during those five years, it sounds like at least two of the names that you've said, Dorothy Day and Merton, are people that have been. People that you read that must have affected you, they've kind of been beacons for you, because I've heard you refer to them all the in time. conversation. Yeah, all the yeah. Time. So it kind of set your 
social direction. It did. It um, did. It what, was it lonely, or did you have a sense of connection to these writers from diff- different eras well, that you were? Yeah, there was a loneliness because you had to figure out what your emotional makeup was. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, there is a correlation between how well you know yourself. If you're interested in having a relationship with God, which at that point I thought I wanted one, there's there's a correlation between how well you know yourself and how the quality of your relationship with God. That's what Merton wrote, right? Exactly. In Seeds. Exactly. Um, yeah. Right. Well, so what did you find out about yourself in these? Well, that I needed some help. It <laughs> <laughs> was a little ragdoll. Uh, but the interesting thing... <laughs> My editor's looking so pained on the other side of the table. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm taking it in. I'm absorbing Jeez. it. Well, the fortunate thing for me is that uh, the four years, the, the, the year of the Vishit, and then the four years of college were also formation. Uh, what happened is I became a scholar. I, I, I found some sense of identity in getting good grades. But the fortunate thing for me, which was not so fortunate for other people, is I actually came to love what I was doing. Other people got good grades, but they never seemed to become lifelong learners. Or that that was so. The fortunate thing for me is, by the time I got to be a junior in college at the Catholic University, I was absolutely in love with what I was doing and studied constantly. Any time we weren't in chapel or or eating dinner or lunch and that sort of thing. And when did you begin teaching? Uh, in 1963, after the, after you graduate from college, then you're sent to some school in the New York district, which extended from Detroit to Buffalo to LaSalle Institute in Troy to Christian Brothers Academy in Albany, uh, all the way down to New York City. And you were Newburgh? And I got assigned to Newburgh, which was a no-no because the, the school only had about 128 students, and there were four teachers who ran the high school with a principal. So you would teach. Most teachers, as I've written, have a hard time finding out what the damn races are when September rolls around, and here you're teaching five different subjects. Uh, so when I got to the school, they said, you have a choice, either teach algebra or biology. And I had had one biology class, which was my freshman year in high school. <laughs> so being sort of a little prep school, uh, when it got to be uh, Halloween, my ears were boxed in. So I can recall the day I went over to uh, the Newburgh Public Library and took out uh, three armfuls of books on biology. And while I was teaching, while the kids were learning biology for me during the day, I was learning biology for me at night. So you were just one step ahead of what you were teaching. I, oh, 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 that, that didn't work. No, no, these kids, uh, I, I, as I said in the book, uh, if, if you're teaching algebra, uh, so that was the choice. And the algebra teacher, by the way, who chose that, he, he got beaten up and he had to ask the, the, the math teacher. He was an English teacher. So the, the three, I should say, the three language teachers, the French, the English, and the Latin teacher, all had to pick either a science or a math. So what was your other subject that you taught? I taught Latin and I taught religion. Latin religion and biology. Yes. That is quite a combination. It, it was, uh, you were forced to be a Renaissance man. Yeah, well, I already was, in a way. Uh, and then I would coach in the fall, uh, 
What did you cross coach? country? I coached basketball in the winter, and I coached track in the spring. I started the school newspaper. Uh, it was actually the the, 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 sec, the bloody stone, uh, of which we found uh, seventeen issues recently. Uh, which and it was a very yeah we we got a little like a little award from the uh, the Newberg uh, better. Uh, whatever it's, we got some kind of award. Nothing well, like the what? York. Tell us about teaching itself. What was that like? Well, I, I, in a lot of cases, uh, I should mention, by the way, to start from the back. I still meet fairly regularly with kids I taught fifty years ago. So you made an impression. You made a connection. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we used to use a little corporal punishment periodically, so we did make an impression. <laughs> But uh, yeah, there was just a reunion in Newburgh about a month ago, and 200 students from that school showed up. And you see people that you taught 55 years ago. But you liked the role of teacher. Uh, yeah, I, I felt like I was a natural teacher. Uh, so having gotten beat up, say, for example, in biology, uh, uh, by November or December, I had sort of quasi-mastered it. I found out how to skin that cat. And by the second year of a class of, say, 33 kids, I 25 were getting over 90 in the New York State regions. So uh, I learned how to skin that cat, you know. Uh, and the same thing in Latin. I mean, teaching a foreign language is kind of strange, as, as, as you might know, because it's like teaching math. If the kids who were left behind, they get, they start to get angry at the teacher because they're lost. And so you have to deal with that. You have to sort of encourage these kids to sort of to stay with it. You know, if they get a 65 in the regions or, or whatever, just to get through, you know. But I felt like I was a natural teacher. Uh, I, I, I took to teaching, but I was a very uh, offbeat teacher as well. Uh, I, this book I just put together on our school, which is called The, uh, the Little Edge That Could. Indeed. Comma, it did. And I invited, because the students were very mouthy in that school, mouthy in the sense of the, the, the discipline, I mean, the... the Academic discipline was strict. You know, you, you had a, a strict academic curriculum, but the kids felt very much at home with us. I was 20, That's I what saw, I was going to ask, because I taught for a while. It was at university, and what I didn't like and why I became a journalist instead was <laughs> you were up there and people were taking notes, and you held the power because you graded them, and right. they were trying to please you. And I much prefer an even field where yeah. you're kind of going back and forth with yes. people. And you strike me that way, too. But I, I, it, this was the kind of school where... The, they were all men, young men. They yes. felt comfortable challenging you and having back and forth kinds of discussions. Or oh, all the time. Uh, I mean, for example, for sophomore religion, which I taught, uh, we would take uh, Simon Garfunkel "Sounds of Silence" uh, and look at what that meant for being a sixteen-year-old uh, in nineteen sixty-five. Uh, we would look at the, the, that uh, that song Georgie Girl, where you're searching inside that there's somebody in there. That uh, so it was it, it was really a secular kind of. I mean, you also taught about Jesus, and there was 
talking about God, but it was really a uh, helping these kids. They're actually 64, three, four, five, six, and seven to find themselves in this changing era. Um, so that you know, yeah, it uh, was an era of great upheaval, it was, and teenage years are years personally of great upheaval yeah. anyway. So that's it, a, it, it, a double right. combination you were dealing with. And I've always, I've always liked teenagers. I feel even pains in the derriere. I, I, they've never really they they they're irksome. And they they bore, I was going to say they didn't bother me. They bother you, but I never felt like threatened. I always felt like I had something to. Uh, to help them to do, you know, to, to move them from point A to point B in some way that was beneficial to them. So you left after 10 years. What made you leave? Well, uh, the 60s. Uh, the, the, the French Order, the Brothers of the Christian School, was a very conservative French Order. People were arguing over whether you should wear that robe that we were talking about or whether you should wear a collar or whether you should wear a sweater. And I said, look, People are being killed in Vietnam, and, and you're worried about a damn collar? This is ridiculous. But there were a lot of older people who just was, had no sense at all uh, of that world. So you left for what? You did what next? Well, uh, I left in the, in the third week of December 1967. And I started driving a truck for Wales Trucking Company, which delivered uh, food for was with the sole distributors of Procter & Gamble. So I was delivering on Mott Street in Manhattan, or the Bronx, in Woodridge, New Jersey, Duncan Hine Cakes Mix, Jiffy Peanut Butter. Uh, I had already had a Class 2 license because the brothers had three buses, and they picked out certain people to drive the buses from Washington, D.C., to Oakdale, Long Island, to, uh, from back from the house we lived in over to the university. Uh, so I had, I already had a class two license. So I started, I was driving a, uh, uh, a truck, uh, for, uh, for Whalers Trucking. And my cousin who was working for the New York State Division for Youth, uh, Mary Lackman, she said, uh, by the way, they're looking for a GED teacher at this start center. Start, I think stood for short term adolescent rehabilitation training, uh, which was for girls, 17 girls who live in a house the size of our building here. And I became a GED, GED teacher for those girls. Wow. So you and went I was, from, and I was, well, and I was teaching as a friar to a trucker to working with troubled adolescent girls getting their high school diplomas. Exactly. Uh, PIDs, persons in need of supervision, mm-hmm. and people who adjudicated JDs by the state of New York. And, uh, while I was doing that, uh, a flyer came across. I, and I was also looking at a PhD in Greek and Latin at Columbia and NYU. And uh, a flyer came across the desk of the director of the program, a clinical psychologist. And she said, oh, a new school of criminal justice is opening at the State University at Albany. Greek and Latin, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's all those programs are closing down. Criminal justice and the omnibus crime control bill had just been passed or it was just being passed in 1968. She said, you got to go to this. This is the next wave. So I wound up getting into the University at Albany with with a fellowship without even having sent the paper in. I had to, I had to, I had to send the papers in ultimately, but uh, telephone calls were made and I was, so I wound up getting a PhD in criminal justice. 
and what tell us about that field why i I know you have written a lot on restorative justice and it's dear to your heart so we don't have a lot of time but why is that why is that important why is that central to you well uh having grown up with thomas Merton. Uh, and having grown up with Dorothy Day, but having grown up with parents who were very keenly aware of social justice, they were, uh, we did grow up in a well-to-do household. My grandfather had, had a lot of money, but uh, there was, was always- he the one that you talk, produce, wrote about the, the apples? Pro, yeah, and the, the produce, okay, I love that column. <laughs> the produce person. What did your parents do? What? My father worked for the Bayo Navy Yard as a packer, and my mother was a, a homemaker. Uh, my grandfather owned five houses, in the neighborhood, so his first three daughters all moved into those houses. So, but your parents had a real sense of social justice. Oh, absolutely. There was there was always uh, there was always a sense of of, of like uh, yeah, there was like a compassion for people in the world, you know. So I picked that up early. Uh, I picked it up in the parish, but also I picked it up in the readings of Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day and, and, and people of that sort, who we already talked about. Uh, so when I went out, when I finished the, I actually didn't finish the PhD program uh, then, uh, but I wanted to teach at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And uh, with a colleague there, we wrote the first criminology book from an anarchist perspective. Uh, the only person who had written anything from an anarchist perspective, really, having to do with delinquency and crime, uh, was Joy of Sex person who, who, who's uh, he's escaping me a col- uh, oh I, I know the book yeah, The Joy of Sex uh, yeah. took its title from The Joy of Cooking it was kind of this manual yeah. it was but I don't understand what your book was how was it like that it was oh no no no, no. there's only one other book had ever touched upon issues of crime criminology or justice from an anarchist point of view so we that book it was called The Struggle to Be Human and we couldn't, we were, Larry Tift and I, we were rejected by 25 publishers here. It was finally published in the Orkney Islands uh, by Britain's, by Stuart Christie, Britain's most notorious anarchist. Uh, and we wound up at one point, each of us sent $500 for, for Stuart's legal defense fund because, I mean, if you go, you, you know, you Google Stuart Christie, anarchist, I mean, he comes up. Uh, but he was into violence. We were we were pacifists. So it's interesting. He got a hold of the text, and he he bracketed some pieces. He said, like, if well, if this pacifist peace stuff doesn't work, he says you should really knock a couple of people over there. <laughs> so we saw the final piece. He did that in a couple of places, not only a couple of places. Oh my goodness! So, but the two of you wrote this book without any sense of it, a publisher in mind. You just cared about this as a topic. Yes, it was yes. the name of it again. This is struggle, struggle to be human, crime, criminology, and anarchism. So, because we were having such a difficult time, I, 1978. I mean, we're talking the most conservative point, except for now, in history. I mean, Reagan was going to commit it two years later. Uh, that that sort of uh, hiatus between Nixon's resigning in, in 1980 when Reagan came, um, things were very, very conservative. That's where the Marxist criminologists and Marxist sociologists started to flood into universities as a response to that. But we were personalists. 
you know, not, not, we weren't looking at, you know, we, mar- we weren't Marxist Leninists looking for social revolution. We were persons looking for, you know, communitarian values, uh, in community. So because we're having such a difficult time getting that book, uh, printed, published, I said, well, I'll write a book of my own and then a textbook and then we'll sell that and we'll use those funds to publish it ourselves. So I wrote a book, uh, called The Mask of Love. Uh, corrections in America, which really had to do with the American correctional system from an atticus point of view. Why the mask of love? Well, that people who worked in bureaucracies and for the state were really not relating to people on a face-to-face basis, that they were relating through this role of so they had like a facade. A facade. It was, so it was a mask uh, over the year and that uh, you know, I mean, Dorothy Day, the Catholic worker, she was providing houses of hospitality for people. That, that there's no mask there. Yeah. Uh, you know. So, anyways, so, so that I got published right away. And while uh, that was being published, uh, Stuart Christie in the Orkney Islands, he said, "I'll take the other one." So the two books came out within two months of each other. And do you feel they made a difference? Uh, I mean, the books. You know, we could go to. We could go to Harvard, Cambridge, uh, Cambridge University, Oxford. We could go to Australia. The book, you know, the books were in all those libraries. So I, I don't know. Uh, the book, one of the, one of the books that Larry Tift and I wrote on restorative justice, uh, we got a call, uh, email, uh, two emails, I guess that's a call, uh, from somebody in Iran, uh, saying that they wanted to translate that book into Farsi. And it didn't make any difference whether we said yes or no because they didn't recognize international proprietary rights. But it didn't make any difference. He said, of course, you wouldn't get any royalties, but that was not our interest. Royalties were not. We didn't write those things for money. You were trying to spread your philosophy. Oh, you could write textbooks. I mean, I could write a textbook, you know, by tomorrow night. So uh, this request... Rose could, read it, Rose could read it next week. <laughs> this request from Iran came in what era? What, I'm sorry? When when was this request to translate it into Farsi? What uh, era about, were you in? Uh, about eight or nine years ago. I had found out from uh, the... the uh, One of the restorative justice readings that we put together uh, was, was published in the UK. And I had found out from our editor there... Uh, uh, Gerhard Baumgarten, uh, a, a, a great, great person, a rock and roll, a German, uh, who be, a German Brit. He became, he didn't become a Brit, but he, he uh, who was a rock and roller. He had a rock band in Germany for years. He's just a wonderful person. Uh, the, uh, I lost my train of thought. What was the question again? <laughs> I got, I got caught in my own logic. I don't know, but I'm trying to see, maybe if you just describe the heart of the philosophy of restorative justice, what it is and how it does or doesn't relate to our prison system. Well, uh, if uh, the way criminal justice operates, if someone hurts or harms someone else, the state steps in and says, we'll take, we'll take charge of it. Well, the relationship between the person who's done the harm and the person who's been harmed, they're left out of the picture. So the state is essentially stolen the correctional, the person, face-to-face personal correctional process from the community. Uh, and restorative justice says if someone has been harmed, if they don't feel they're going to be re-victimized and want to talk to uh, the person who's harmed them, 
then they see that as a restorative process. Uh, so, for example, in restorative justice, in sentencing circles, for example, uh, sometimes 25 people will get together to deal with a harm situation. It could be the families of both people involved. It could be community members who are involved. Uh, so it's, 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 you see it's a, it takes a lot of time, but it's also a very effective way to, uh, you know, to make things right. And are there places in the world where this is working? Well, let me shoot the Reconciliation Commission of South Africa, for example, was a restorative justice program. Uh, the Kachacha in Rwanda was a restorative justice program. Uh, there are restorative justice programs in, uh, in, in the United States, for example, in Minnesota, and many states have ad- adopted it, but there's small... Uh, the uh, uh, David Suarez ran on a ticket of restorative justice, and he uh, did it. Re- so we didn't see any action. So I say he, we, Fred Bohr of the Catholic Work and I, uh, I wrote a letter to David. They called him up and said, uh, "I don't see any action here. I'd like to get together and talk to you about uh, how come you're dragging your feet." So Fred and I went down to his office and we talked to him about why Albany County wasn't uh, responding to what David has said in his uh, in his platform. Uh, well, they 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 nothing really has happened except once after that I got a call David's right-hand man at that point was a fellow by the name of Delisandro and he called me up uh, there was a little program uh, in, in the city, a little program for a while. And he called me up because some young fellow who went to CBA, Christian Brothers Academy in Albany, which is out by the airport now, had been beaten up by some fellow students. And the, the mother of this child, uh, well, teenager, uh, wanted to have a meeting with the kids who were involved. They wanted the school to be involved. CBA had denied that the school had anything to do with it. Uh, and the, the mother was saying uh, they felt that there was a culture. And this kid happened to be African-American, by the way. And the kids who uh, got involved in, in battering him were, were white. Uh, and uh, so I went down and met with Alessandro and... The two, the two parents, the two women who, uh, so, so we started to set up that program. Was there a way where we could get the school involved, the family, the kids involved, the families of the kids involved, uh, and try to restore, uh, the relationships and maybe create a sense of justice where people would feel, you know, or find some satisfaction? Yeah, I can imagine it working very well in the school setting that, American prison system is so bureaucratic, it's hard to fathom it, is, it, it working. Is. But we got off the linear track. That's my fault. We left you well, in Chicago. I think, it, so, Melissa, as I said to somebody this morning, that Nun Sacretor is highly underrated. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but what happened after Chicago? You wrote this book. You finally had these two published well, almost simultaneously. Uh, I, I, I ran into a little trouble there because... Uh, my, uh, my colleague, Larry Tift, I mean, I had a lot of colleagues, but a colleague and friend, uh, was denied tenure. People had said what a wonderful teacher he was, uh, and, uh, what a good thinker he was, but they denied him tenure. So I wrote a letter to all the faculty, 
two-page single-space letter. It gave it to all the faculty. And they went and met, uh, in a sort of restorative gesture, each of those faculty face-to-face and said, you know, not to say, did you vote this guy down or whatever, but I tried to smoke him out a little bit. Uh, and I quit the job uh, in protest. So my young academic career... <laughs> Got stymied, and I was married then and had a child. So wait, wait, wait we missed that. <laughs> what we missed? That's an important chapter. Meeting Georgia. How did that happen? Well, that that was I was married for seven years to Pat. Oh, before okay. Georgia. Georgia and I been together for forty-one years. All right. Uh, but so I had to hustle up the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, to get a job. Uh, I had to get a job somewhere. I had to pay the rent and, yeah. and, and the lights, find the money for that. Uh, so what? Wisconsin. Yeah, so I went up there. And then after that year, I came back, I came back there. It's a little more complex. We don't have time for that now, but uh, I've told that story many, many times. But, uh, so then I came, I moved back into this area. And I, I took a job. I, I, I opened up a bookstore in Troy. Uh, called Baobab Books, named after the Baobab tree. Because the, little I, print, huh? the little prince Baobab tree? Yes, yes, oh. the, the, the Baobab tree. Uh, and <laughs> because, I, what? I love that book. I'm just it's, trying to... It is. Yeah. Because the tree is a tree of mutual aid in a way. Because animals that don't get along outside of that tree come in and they share that, that space together in a friendly or convivial kind of way. So, a bookstore. So, did you deal in old books, new books? Uh, used books. Some, some, uh, you know, some really nice books. So, I'm sitting in the window one day of this book uh, store that I had on Fourth Street in Troy, uh, and there is a fellow walking by, Bob Sullivan, who was the director, acting director of the New York State Division of Probation. He looks at me, he goes, Dennis. I said, Bob. So he comes in, and I said, hey. I said, the bookstore is like struggling along here. So what do you got over there in the State Division of Probation? Uh, he says, well, he says, something is opening up. He says, I think we could use you, you know. Uh, and it took a little while because the director of that program, Walter Dunbar, had had a heart attack. Uh, and Walter Dunbar was involved with Russ Oswald in Attica, and I always said the heart attack, he, cut, he had the heart attack cutting grass, the lawn. And I said that was the case because uh, as he cut the tops of the blades of grass, uh, blood from the attica flowed all the way underneath the ground. It shot up out of the blades of grass, and he saw it had a heart attack on his lawn. Oh. Anyway, I, I was hired by the New York State Division of Probation on a grant, and there one of these analysts was... Georgia Hamilton Gray. (laughs) (laughs) There we have it. And 41 years later, you're still writing your beautiful poem. So what was your job there? What did you do? Well, it was was uh, an analyst. uh, And the job was uh, to create a test for the probation officer in New York State. Uh, and it was a sizable grant, 1976, uh, 250,000. That'd be like three quarters of a million dollars now. I looked, I read the, I read the grant and they thought, like somebody said, Dennis, you are going to be a star. Whatever happened to you? I said, I am a star. Look how bright I am. Uh, and, uh, I said, this, this study was done in California in parole. 
I said, this is, I said, I'll take care of this study. So we, we went out and interviewed people and things of that sort. I said, I'll write the final report. So 13 people wound, started the grant and three wound up because we essentially jettisoned them as the grant, as the grant progressed. I said, I would write the final report, which I did. So what was the center of the final report? The final report was that probation officers who were most successful, people who divorced themselves from the bureaucratic role they were involved in, it could relate to the probations on a personal face-to-face basis. So it has again to do with removing the mask. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so the, the, uh, the, the state... It was unhappy with that because they were looking for a quantitative study, and this was a quantitative result, quantitative, and, and this was a qualitative. Uh, and the people there were very unhappy because I had written Victor Bayou was the commissioner of civil service at that time. And people, I, I, you know, I didn't know what the rules for government were, but I had written on, on New York State Division of Probation Stationery a two-page letter to the commissioner arguing for the equalization of salaries in New York State. <laughs> and the people, <laughs> people uh, in, the, in the know or in power were like unhappy with that. I, I didn't know you were not supposed to use <laughs> the, the, the organization stationary, stationary for that sort of mm. thing. You know? so, uh, but it was a good letter, you know, uh, I have a copy home somewhere. So, so what happened next? And I can see now why you liked the non sequitur, because your life is kind of this, it, it, it didn't have a straight path. It was, you were in a bookstore, someone walked by. You right. had a series That's of a, events right. that have set your course. So yeah, what, my whole life has been luck. It's just, uh, it's just luck. Uh, you know, there's no other, there's no other word for it. It's, uh, but, there's always been, I've always, I mean, for 40 years now, I've been a, I, I've been a writer. I've been a poet. Uh, I've been writing poetry for 40 some years. As well. Tell us about that. Why do you write poems? Well, uh, I, uh, what? I mean, it's, that's a very difficult question. Uh, Wallace Stevens says the function of the poet is to lend his or her imagination to the community. And so that the community can reconfigure ways to be in which people would be more human. And I think, so that, that's very much related to what, I've, what I write, what I've written in these, these sort of social tracks, you know, these political, economic, uh, social tracks that I've written over the years, you know. Uh, even the book I just finished, uh, The Little Engine It Could, it really is critical of the Christian brothers for failing in their mission in Newburgh, uh, five blocks from the school, from, from here, you know, to the, the old Enterprise office. Uh, uh, Newburgh had a community of black people who were poor, uh, downtrodden from that, 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 uh, that Mitchell who was the, the city manager for a while. And the Christian brothers never took any black, they never had a black student in the school. And I kept saying, I thought the mission of the Christian brothers was to teach the poor gratuitously. And here we're not teaching the poor. We're taking these kids from Beacon and Clowall, New York and New Windsor who are well healed and smart. Uh, and we're not really responding to, uh, 
we're not really responding to those people. Well, you also like to share writing. I mean, I know you run a memoir group at the no, at the, yeah, the yeah. Boris of the Library, yeah, and yeah. you've had discussions which had an edge of controversy when it came to Woody Allen's movies. I mean, what is it about gathering people together to either write or talk about writing or talk about art? Why Why do you do that? Well, I uh, I read the poetry group at the library, to the Every Other Thursday poetry group for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. I started the group called the Third Saturday Posey Cafe. Uh, it was with six people. Uh, I started the Sunday Four Poetry Open Mic. Uh, I started the, Is that still going? Because no, we don't get no. your notices. I'm like, I'm like no. I'm turning 78 this year. I don't have, I don't, I, I gotta reserve my juice for other things, you know? <laughs> and, and of course we had the Smith's Tavern Poet Laureate Contest. Yeah. But I'm asking why. So few people pay attention to poetry these days. Well, why? Uh, that's beside the point. Uh, you know, Dan Berrigan once said, you, 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 whatever you do, you do it. You never look for the results. Uh, he said that in Albany at the, at the Best Western Conference. We brought him up once to talk, uh, to the, uh, this, this, I, 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 I should say, uh, two, I started a journal called the Contemporary Justice Review, which Routledge publishes in the UK. So that started in like 1987. So I was the editor-in-chief of that for 11 years. Uh, I, I was on the editorial. I, it, because there were disgruntled uh, people involved in criminal justice, social justice, who said they, 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 when they went, uh, they, when they, they couldn't get to what they wanted to say published. Because the, the journals of criminal justice were so conservative, or that the uh, the journals that were so to speak progressive were Marxist based, so there really was no personalist, uh, anarchist, uh, pacifist, face to face journal or journal that would take those kind. So. One particular fellow, Dennis Longby, he, he would use the wine all the time about I can't get anything published. So I started this journal. I said, Dennis, now shut up. You got a journal. And he never said – well, I interviewed him once because he used to hold – during the death penalty, uh, when people were executed in Texas, he would go and stand on 12th Street with a candle. Uh, and I interviewed him in the journal. But also people said that the American Society of Criminology – uh, uh, the American Sociological Association were, were all too conservative. So I started an association called the Justice Studies Association. And it's still going. That started in 87, which is a very, it was a, a very progressive, you know, very progressive group. So I, there I started, I'm asking you a question because I created two forms. Uh, it's no different from starting the school newspaper in 1963 in St. Patrick's, uh, creating forms in which people could feel at home, which is what Wallace Stevens says is poetry. You create a place where people can, you know, feel at home, you know, and imagine ways how they, you know. My next column will be on Ursula Le Guin. That's what she did in that, in that, in that book she wrote in 1976, The Dispossessed. She was always looking for these utopian, uh, societies or ways to envision societies in which the needs of all people are met. And, you know, if you look through my columns, I mean, that, that thing, you know, you've edited them all, uh, you'll see that they all have to do with, in some way or other, people's needs being met. 
I'm thrilled to hear that because I've often tried to find the common thread. I love your columns, but I hadn't seen a common thread. So we're way past our time, but you mentioned you're 78. I find that surprising, and you have to save your juice for the important stuff. What is the important stuff? What uh, I live the life now that I did when I entered the Christian Brothers. Contemplative. Yes. Reading, thinking. All, all, yes. And I have my column, my, you know, our little newspaper here, uh, which, you know, I spend a lot of time on that, as you can see. Uh, and writing poetry, and thinking, and reading. Uh, but the stuff that I read, you know, uh, is, is uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to, uh, you have to sort of take a pick and axe and, Tear it apart a little bit and think, <laughs> think, think about the meeting of it. It's not no leisure reading for Dennis Sullivan. No. Well, thank you so much. I don't know if you have a closing thought. If you do, it's yours. I, I uh, the uh, the non-sequitur thing is pretty. <laughs> What? The Nud Sequitur is highly underrated. Oh, non sequitur. So, yeah. so uh, we saw that in this conversation how yeah. how we went from A to B to, to Z to R to back again. You know, the students when I taught at the university would go, Doctor Sullivan, you uh, you went from A to B to there. You were only around for fifteen minutes, and I and you actually answered the question. <laughs> but you know, it's like a little subway ride. Well, thanks for the ride, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Rose.